those of us who have not grown up in small towns sometimes have dreams of living in small towns. I'm kind of like that. You know, they just seem so ideal. They seem so perfect. Once there was a small town that had about 300 people in it. It was a classical small town uh, where everyone knew everyone, you know, how kind of tight and close. And, of course, like in most small towns, they're very traditional. They had traditions, and what they would have each year was a, a harvest festival of sorts. And at this harvest festival, they would have a lottery. You know, you ever been to one of these small town harvest festivals, they usually have a lottery or a raffle. Maybe you're familiar with that. They're just a lot of fun. We can all have fun and get together. Well, at this lottery, each year, one individual was chosen. And as that individual was chosen, then all of their family and their, their friends would, would gather around this individual. And then they would brutally stone them to death. So tradition has lasted about 70 years. And it was meant to ensure a good harvest through human sacrifice. How many know that story? Yeah, a lot of you know that story. It's a famous short story by Shirley Jackson called The Lottery. And to us, you're like, yikes, that's quite the story. But that story was published in the 1940s in The New Yorker. And when it came out, people were freaking out. Like, what are you doing to write such a brutal story? You've got to explain yourself And this is what she said in response. She said this. I supposed, I hoped, by setting a particularly brutal ancient rite in the present and in my own village to shock the story's readers with a graphic dramatization of the pointless violence and general inhumanity in their own lives. It's a great story because through smiling faces and festive events, she's pointing to the darkness of the human heart. It's, it's that darkness that we're all familiar with. It's, it's not just that we make mistakes in life, oops, but there's something darker lurking in all of us. Not just in the world out there, but in the world in here. But, this is what we've been talking about for months. The good news is that there is someone greater than the darkness within, and there's someone greater has invaded our world to not only change humanity, but also change our lives. And it's this person we celebrate, Jesus Christ. And it's his gospel, this gospel of God, that we've been studying week after week in the book of Romans. So let's go back to this good news as we go back to Romans. So let's go ahead and turn back there. Romans chapter 5. We're in the middle of a six-week period of waiting on the Lord that we're calling a season of expectation. It's a season while we want to worship while we wait. And last week we ended on a note of hope. That those who believe in Jesus, who trust Christ, that the work God started in them, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Remember the graphs I showed you last week. The first graph shows that those who are converted will end up in glory with 
God forever through faith in Christ. But we also decided we're going to scrap that graph and see a more appropriate graph is the next one where we have on the way to glory, we have these little moments while we wait. We don't know what's going to happen next. We wait, we trust, we obey. God reveals what we're doing next. He reveals what we're doing next. He reveals what we're doing next. So in the midst of that, we trust and obey. But what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to introduce some tension. And the tension is this. You live in a world that's dominated by sin. All right, that's just the way it is, right? You see that. And the deal is that sin sometimes dominates your own heart and sometimes dominates your own life. So will that sin that you see out in the world and sometimes it dominates you, will it ultimately separate you from God? And the answer is, nope, no way, right? No way those who are in Christ who trust him will forever be with him one day and he'll take them to him, be with him one day forever. Graph one again, all right? Graph one. For sure, those who are converted will end up in glory one day. Okay, but here's the question. If that's true, does that mean until you get there, (laughs) until you get there, sin is going to dominate your life? Until you get there, sin is going to be your master. Until you get there, sin is going to rule you. Until you get there, there is nothing you can do but say yes to sin all the time. That's just the way it's going to be. Is that the gospel we believe. Here's the deal. I not only want you to believe in Jesus as your Savior, I want you to believe in Jesus as your sanctifier. The gospel that saves you also sanctifies you. It means that you grow. Go back to graph two. Throughout your life, if you're a true believer, you're going to have these this growth and sanctification. Some of it's going to be small, some of it's going to be big. But, but the reality is that Jesus came not only to, to save the people, take them to heaven, but he also came to sanctify people, to make them holy, to make them like them, to conform them to the image of Christ. It doesn't mean they're going to be perfect in their life, but it means that sin is no longer going to be having the ruling, the last call, and the calling of the shots in their lives. And here's, here's the thing I just want to start preaching at you today, and hopefully for the next four weeks you'll, you'll get it. Here's the deal. I want you to be hopeful that you don't have to be under the reign of sin. In fact, I'm going to put it to you this way. I want you to have super abounding expectations and the super abounding grace of God. I Actually, if you're a believer, I want you to have expectations that sin is not going to rule over you. If you have something dominating you right now and you feel hopeless, you feel like you're never going to get out of it, I want to say, my brother and my sister, if you know the Lord, you should have expectations that you can be free. And if you've come here this morning and you don't think that you can be free, I don't know what gospel you're believing. Because the gospel we preach, it's from the Bible that Jesus is our Savior and he's our sanctifier. He's here to grow a people in holiness as well. So we have these great expectations, or we want to, that we can actually experience freedom, that we no longer need to live under the dominion of sin. So here's where we're going in Romans 5. Some have classified Romans 5 as the most difficult passage in Romans. Thanks a lot. Here we go. If you get confused this morning... I'm confused as well. Here's, the, here's our structure that you can kind of follow. Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 14 is going to be ruin of humanity. Then we're going to move to the rescue in Jesus and to the reign. Now, you're really going to have to pay attention because this is going to be some uh, going to be hard to explain, hard for me to track, hard for you to track. I think we'll be okay. Pay attention. What I'm trying to hammer to you is because of this grace that's come, you can be hopeful, not only for eternal life, you can be hopeful for victory in this life. Do you believe it? Let's see it. Let's start with our ruin. Romans 5, verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. How did our world get so evil? Well, it all started with a real historical person named Adam. And this historical person experienced actual historical events that we have at the very beginning of the Bible. And this is how it went down. Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. (laughs) So he broke the command, as we all know. And Paul says that death came through sin. And the question is, are we talking about spiritual death? Are we talking about physical death? Because Adam, he ate the fruit, and he didn't die. God said, you eat it, you're going to die. And he, I didn't die. So he got kicked out of the garden, and later he died. So when we talk about this death here, it is both a spiritual death and it is a physical death. It's a spiritual separation from God, death, and also a physical death that we're all going to experience because we are in Adam. Now, this spiritual and physical death, according to verse 12, has spread to all men because all sinned. One of the hardest things to explain is going to be this right here. This is talking about something called corporate identity or headship. Uh, We're we're all individuals, and we like to feel like we are individuals in this world, and that's good, and we want to feel like we're accountable for our own sin, which we should be. I'm responsible for my sin, and I get that. But try to put that aside for now and understand that Adam is the head or the representative of humanity. And when he sinned, we all sinned in him. His sin was imputed to us. So he made a decision. We got the effects. We had no say in it. It's like our our representatives in our government, uh, from the president to the Congress, they pass laws, and it affects us. Some of them are negatively. We have no say in it in some sense. I know we kind of do. We elect them and everything. But once they pass the law, it comes down upon us, and we have no say in that. And so we're kind of being affected. That law is imputed to us, the effects of it. And that is what happened in Adam. Adam doomed us all. He doomed you, he doomed me, he doomed all humanity. It's all Adam's fault. Now, just in case you feel like you have no responsibility at all, look again at the end of verse 12. So death spread to all men because all sin. So as death started spreading to humanity, you're like, give me some of that. We welcome that sin. It's not like we're saying, no, I don't want any of that. No, we willingly participate in the sin, and ultimately, we are no different than Adam. I mean, it's it's common, a saying kind of goes like this. All right, if I was in the garden with Adam, what would I do, right? What would you have done, right? So you're with Adam, and there's Eve, and Adam takes a bite, and and what are you going to say? Adam, man, what are you doing? I told you not to listen to that woman. No, you wouldn't say that. You would probably say, Adam, can I please have a bite? See, that's like we willingly participate in this sin. Yet, the point of Paul, what he's saying here, is that Adam's the one that did it. As your representative, and it's been imputed to humanity, in Adam, all die. So good? All right. Verse 13. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Hmm. How can you have sin without breaking revealed commands of God? How can you have sin without breaking the Ten Commandments? I mean, even Adam had a command, don't eat that fruit, and he ate it. Even he had a command, but how can you have sin when there are no commands? That's an interesting question Paul's bringing up here. Was there still sin before the law was given? Oh, yeah. Think about the universal flood, humanity being destroyed, being judged because of sin. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Punishment because of sin. Right? Well, how do you know that sin was in the world before the law was given? Well, guess what? People still died. So that shows you that sin was in the world. Hey, the sin wasn't counted in the same way that they're breaking a known transgression, and yet it is still sin. So with the law, without the law, in Adam we all die. We are all separated from God, and eventually all of us will die. That's not very helpful. But we got this little hint here at the very end of 14 that someone else is coming along who was a type of the one who was to come. There's a reference to Jesus. Some have called Jesus the second Adam. And he was going to come on the scene, turn it around, impact humanity in a different direction. And so now we come to this point of rescue. We're done talking about ruin, moving to rescue, and we need a new head. We need a new representative. We need someone to represent us before God in holiness rather than in Adam. That's where we're going. Now, I want to kind of keep you organized here because it's very difficult to see what Paul's doing. And so I'm going to kind of give you a header, and we are going to compare Adam's trespass with the one act of righteousness of Jesus. So we're going to contrast between the trespass and the gift of grace in Jesus. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. So here we got our first comparison. The trespass, as we can see here, brought death versus the free gift brings grace. So Adam brought death and separation to humanity. So Jesus invades sinful humanity, his gift of grace in his life and his death and his resurrection for sinners. And so Jesus in his work is far superior to the work of Adam. Jesus reverses the ruin and brings rescue. Now, is it easier to mess things up or to clean things up? Far easier to mess things up. Your kids, my kids, us as kids, us as adults, so much easier to mess something up than to clean it. So Adam messes up humanity through his one act. And Jesus Christ reverses the curse, cleans up humanity through his righteousness. He does the harder work, his death and his resurrection. And now we are told that this grace from this text, this grace is now abounding to sinners. Super abounding in the sense that it rescues us from the ruin of our sin and brings us into the realm of grace. And in the realm of grace, what do we get? We get forgiveness and we get a relationship with God and we get power to change. All right, this is what I'm getting at. This grace that is superabounded to you through the grace of Jesus doesn't just save you where you get to go to heaven now through the forgiveness of Jesus, but it also sanctifies you. Jesus is not just your savior, he's also your sanctifier, which means that you can now change. 
which means that you can have hope of change even in this life, no matter what. No matter what sin may keep you down, you can have hope of change in this life. But what I'm afraid is I interact with the church, I interact with those in the church, interact with those of you in here. I believe that many of us have bought into a false theology, and in honor of Valentine's Day, I'm going to name this theology. I'm going to call it Blind Date Theology. You can write that down, Blind Date Theology. Now, in Blind Date Theology, you always are hoping for the best. Now, this is something that may seem quite strange to you, but this past Friday, I went on a blind date. I'm married, but I went on a blind date. Okay, let me explain. I went to the Skokie Library, and at the Skokie Library, they had this display. Now, you can't even see that, but it says, Blind Date with a Book. Now, here's the concept. The books are all wrapped up. You can't see what they are. And on the covers of these books, they have some really corny sayings. You can't even see them. Like, here's, my, here, here's the book I picked. It says something like, uh, I will sweep you off your feet. So the idea is you check out the book, blind date with the book, and then you open it up and voila, hope for the best. So I, I go to the, the, the counter, and it's kind of embarrassing. I don't think anybody's checked them out but me. So I take it to the counter. I give it to the librarian, and she's all excited. She's like, I've not done one of these before. And, and she puts it on the scanner, and she, she can see what it is. She goes, I'm not going to tell you what it is. And, and in, great, in great librarian humor, she said, I'm sure it's just as nervous. Isn't that great? That was great. I love that. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? It's wonderful. So here's the deal. I open it up. It's some novel called The Storm Chasers. Maybe you read that. I have no idea what it is, but that was fun. But here, back to the blind date theology. How many of you have ever been on an actual blind date? Uh, yeah, you don't admit it. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not me. Uh, some of you. Sometimes it works out, most of the time it does. But when you're, when you're anticipating the blind date, you're, you're always thinking, I'm going to hope for the best. <laughs> I hope for the best. But really you're thinking, this is going to be terrible. And I'm afraid that in the church, some of you have views of growing as just hoping for the best. And I don't want to be nice with you, but sometimes I just want to rebuke you because I want to say, you know what? You and I have such little expectations from God. You believe that he can save you, but you don't believe he can actually change you. And so you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to continue to, to live in this sin for the rest of my life. It will have dominion over him. Brothers and sisters, I have to just rebuke you to your face. <laughs> you have such a small God. That he can save you, but he can't change you? Are you kidding me? Who are you believing in? What kind of grace are you talking about? The grace that saves and the grace that can change. Well, that's just a small God. Let's have these super abounding expectations and throw away this blind date theology that hopes for the best. Let's keep with our comparing, contrasting, and go on to the next one. So the trespass brought condemnation versus the gift brings justification. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Okay? Similar statement in verse 18 and 19. Like it jumped down 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
That's a lot. So the idea is that Jesus' work and impact on history is above and beyond Adam's. And here's his argument. Adam committed one sin that brought condemnation for all. One act. Verse 16, one man's sin. Verse 18, one trespass. Verse 19, one man's disobedience. So Adam's sin, poof, opened up the floodgates and ruined humanity as sin rushed in. Yet the work of Christ is greater. Now that we have Adam's sin imputed to humanity, the work of Christ, Christ is going to turn it around with his death on the cross. Verse 18, one act of righteousness. Verse 19, one man's obedience. So the one act is death and resurrection, reverses the rule and reign of sin, and the one act of Christ will bring what? Justification and life for those who trust in him. Uh, now you understand why it's so important to understand the headship. Remember, we talked about earlier, our representation. Because just as we were minding our own business and had Adam's sin imputed to us, he did it, we got it. The idea is the one act of righteousness of Christ. We trust in him, we get his righteousness. We don't, we don't do it to get it right. We say, have mercy on us, a sinner, and he declares us righteous. Imputation of Adam's sin, imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Wonderful, wonderful gospel that those who trust in Jesus, now on the side of the Father, are declared righteous in Christ. Why does this matter? Don't think about yourself for a moment. Get your, get your mind off yourself for a moment. Think about someone in your life that has a really messed up life. They just really are in rebellion against God. They're very self-focused. They have a very self-centered life. They're living for themselves. They're not living for the Lord in any way, shape, or form. They're self-deceived, and maybe some of them that you know are very self-destructive. Think of that person. Who, who is that person in your life? Who are they? Think about it. Who do you know in your life like that? Okay. What's going to turn it around? What's going to change their lives? What's going to turn it around for them? Are you, are you hoping they're going to figure it out? Are you hoping they're going to go and get some help and they'll be able to figure things out and navigate and turn it around? This is why this is important. The only thing that's going to turn it around is the superabounding grace of Jesus. And I think we need to start praying for others that we see as so hardened that will never change. Start praying for them. You know what? You say, you know what? The superabounding grace of Jesus can come in, break through the, the effects of Adam and change that person. Do you pray for people that way? Do you have hope that the second Adam can break the bonds of the first Adam? Do you believe that? And if so, pray that way. Think about the most hardened sinner in your life and pray for them. Th that would have been me. Like if, if this message was preached about, I don't know, 22 years ago, many people would have thought of me this is the most hardened sinner in their life that would never change unless the grace of God invaded their lives. Change. God's grace. Think about that person. Pray in line for them. Ruin in Adam. Rescue in Christ. Now we come to the last part of this reign. Let's go into this reign. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Hmm. This greater gift that has come into the world, every single person doesn't automatically get it, right? What does it say there? They have to receive it. They have to receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. They have to put their faith in Jesus to receive the grace and justifying work. And once they receive it, the Bible says they will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I like that reigning terminology. I wonder why, why he's using that. It could be because when Adam and Eve were put in the garden, they were, they were to have dominion, right? Have dominion over what, what, they're, what they're overseeing, right? They were to reign in righteousness. And they, they blew that. And now we are those who are saved and we are reigning. And one day we'll reign forever with the Lord. But this is a reigning in life right now. We reign in righteousness through Jesus Christ. So it involves not only eternal life, but newness of life. Now this is what I'm trying to do by preaching Romans 5. Romans 5 is a setup. It's a setup for the next four weeks. Because it not only reflects backwards to the hope of eternal life, but it propels you forward to the things we're going to talk about over the next four weeks of the change that can occur because of the grace of God. Let's put this graph back up again. At conversion, if you are truly converted, you're headed to glory, and there will be bouts of sanctification progressively. Big change, small change, big change, small change, but, and you'll still have sin mixed in there, a lot of foolishness, but there should be some movement and traction in your life that you will no longer be dominated by sin. We're going to get into that in Romans 6, but you can live a life of holiness by His grace. Do you really believe that? Because I have to think that some of you are trying to do is you're trying to change your life, change your bad habits, change your sin patterns through your own effort, through what is called law. Look again at the Bible. Look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Stop. Why is he bringing this up? Because many of the Jews he was interacting with, the self-righteous Jews, believed that the law was given to restrain sin. Why did God give the law? Because we needed sin. It restrains us. It's going to make us more holy. It's going to pull back sin. And the law will be the solution to our sin problem. <laughs> but look what it actually says. Verse 20 again. Verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Oh, did you catch it? To increase the trespass. <laughs> so rather than restraining sin, the law highlighted and exploded sin. All right, see if you can get this. Right, imagine sin is represented by a square red uh, see-through filter, okay? A red see-through filter. As you know, we're going to talk about. And the, the law is the projector and the screen. So we have our sin... It's there. The law comes, shines on it, puts it up on the screen. So the law actually increases the, the trespass. Rather than restraining sin, what the law does is it highlights sin. The law came to increase the trespass, highlights your sin, and exposes it. Now, here we go. This is why this is important. All right, ready? <laughs> Some of you think that the law can fix your sin. That if you can just get enough rules and uh, principles, then, then you're, you're going to 
you're going to fix that sin you've been dealing with. Because rules make you feel in control and, and that you can pull it off. So you would love to have ten rules to the victorious Christian life or ten principles to the victorious Christian life. You've got to talk about this in your ethos. Hear me in context so you don't misunderstand. Some of you think that it's going to be your program or your law that's going to change your, your deal. So let's say you're a cusser. Some of you cuss a lot. You know you do. And you think, man, I hate cussing. I wish I could stop cussing. I've got to get some rules to stop cussing. So I'm going to create a cuss jar. I'm going to put a quarter in every time I cuss. Boop. Cussed again. <laughs> Boop. Cussed again. And then some of you have struggles with eating. Like, Man, I just cannot control my eating. i got issues. I'm going to create a diet. That's going to fix it. I'm going to get it in place, and I'm going to fix this eating through a diet. I'll, I'll follow these rules. They'll, they'll fix it. And some of you have struggles on the computer, if you know what I'm talking about. You're like, i got to fix that. I'm going to get an Internet filter and put it on my computer. That's going to fix it. Is there anything wrong with these things? There is nothing wrong. They can all have their rightful place. Yes? Wait, great. Yes. They can all have their rightful place. But here's, here's what's going on. These rules are going to probably increase your angst. <laughs> and they're probably going to highlight more of your failure. Because what are you thinking when you look at the cuss jar? Oh, boy, it's really full. <laughs> Isn't that working so well? <laughs> what are you doing when you blow diet after diet after diet? What's going on? Like, oh. And what about the internet filter that gives reports to your accountability partner? It's just reminding you, boom, 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 you were here, here, here. Are any of these things bad in and of themselves? No. But what often happens is we want rules to fix us when what we need is brokenness and grace. We need to be broken over our sin to have the grace invade. We can use those other tools later. But if we're thinking those rules are going to change us, we are wrong. We are so wrong. Jesus came to save and he came to sanctify, and rules will not change us. We need the grace. And then the commands and the rules can come in and encourage us, keep us on track. But the rules don't save, and the rules don't change. They reveal we need the grace. They highlight our sin. And they point us to the solution. Verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Boom, there goes sin. But where sin increased, and it did, Grace abounded all the more. I love that, abounded. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the solution right here is grace in the gospel. What will conquer the ruling power of sin in your life? What was going to conquer it? It is grace in the gospel of Jesus. Through his grace, you're declared righteous, you're forgiven. And as His grace invades your life, it changes your heart. And it abounds all the more. In Adam, all is ruined. In Christ, all is restored. Which leads to hope that we can actually change. So the question is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? When you stand before God one day, will you stand in Adam as your representative? If you do, you'll face the holiness and the wrath of God and be cast out of his presence forever. If you stand in Christ 
you're not perfect, but Christ is perfect. His righteousness has been imputed to you by faith. His finished work, you are accepted. And for those of you who are a believer right now, who is influencing you more? Adam or Christ? Who's having sway and pull in your life right now? Adam or Christ? And I want to say that those who are in Christ, you should expect to grow. You should expect to have grace to walk in freedom and understand that evil is still lurking in our hearts, but it does not have to dominate. You will have struggle. You'll have battles. You'll have slip-ups, but sin should not dominate you and reign over your life. You can be free. won't have perfection in this life, but you can be free. Now, I'm going to do something that might not be very appropriate in church. You may be surprised to hear this in church. That's fine. And I have permission to tell this story in case you're wondering. I have permission. So here we go. Recently, I had, me, immoral thoughts bombard my mind. I wasn't watching anything inappropriate. I didn't see anything inappropriate. You kind of kind of wonder, what were you doing when you started thinking those things. What were you doing? All right, I'll, I'll tell you what I was doing. I was doing this. 7.30 in the morning. Driving to work. And I'm memorizing Romans. Yeah. And in the midst of memorizing Romans, boom! Explosions. What is going on? Minding my business. What's going on? And so these thoughts come, and they seem so brutal and so overwhelming. I say, no, I do not want those thoughts. I reject those. In the name of Jesus, I'm fighting. Get, get, get away from me. Satan, are you messing with me? I don't know. I don't know what's going on spiritually, right? But I'm fighting. I feel overwhelmed, and I wonder what's going on. And I, and I, and I can't explain it, so I come working like I've been in a boxing match or something. Three hours later, I meet with a guy. Guy I've not really talked to much before. I've talked to him a little bit. Never know much about what's going on in his life. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. I talk to him, and he tells me, I'm struggling with sexual morality. It's a big deal. I hate it. I don't want it there. Sometimes I feel hopeless. And I'm like, man, I know what you're talking about. I feel that. Because back in my teen years, it dominated my life. And I wanted to share with him, look, man, there really is hope. You may reach your 40s and still have these temptations, but you don't have to give in to them. There can be hope of actual freedom. And I thought, wow, what a coincidence. I was just fighting this morning, and now I'm telling him, look, there could be hope. Two hours later, the coincidence is over. I talked to someone else. Didn't expect to talk to him. Never really talked in depth with him before about much of anything. Talked to him and says, yep, struggling with sexual morality. Once again, you can be hopeful. There can be victory. It doesn't have to reign over you. You can be free. I've been there, man, and I still get tempted, but you can be free. You don't have to give in to it. You can be free. And I'm wondering, man, what is going on in the spiritual realm? And I'm getting killed at 7.30 in the morning memorizing the word, and I'm, and I'm talking about, I don't know what's going on spiritually, but I do know there is victory. But what if I said, yo, man, welcome to the club. We all give into that stuff. You're just a guy. It's what guys do. One of the boys, right? 
That's what we do. We give in to sin all the time. Oh, you'll keep facing that. Yeah, you can go in and give it. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. How in the world does that give somebody hope? Because we believe in a Savior that is going to take us to heaven, but we also believe in a Savior who is a sanctifier who changes us right now. And if you have a gospel that does not change you, what is that? That is not the true gospel. The gospel is not, well, Jesus can take me to heaven, but until then, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And I'm going to continue to give in to sin always and always. Sin will always dominate me. No, I don't know what, what, what is that? It's that blind date theology again coming through and hope for the best. So whatever you feel like is dominating you right now, I don't know what it is. You don't have to stay under the reign of that dominating sin that kind of has the effects of the fall at Adam. You don't have to continue to do it over and over again. You should have superabounding expectations and the superabounding grace of God that you can be changed by His grace and that you can walk in freedom. And over the next four weeks, as we dive into Romans 6, you're going to see it more and more. And I'm not going to lay it all out for you right now as a map for your freedom. Let's not even do that because there is a certain place you need to start. And if you don't start here, you're going to miss it. And here's the way we're going to start. This is the way I want you to start. This morning, I want you to start by acknowledging your ruin and be really specific. Say, I'm ruined I'm ruined in this area that continues to dominate me and acknowledge your brokenness and that you want to repent and receive the rescuing grace of Jesus by faith, of repentance, faith. Acknowledge your ruin, receive the rescue. And you kind of go, well, what's next? Hey, man, if you're not going to start with those first two things, we're not even going to move on. And we will move on the next few weeks. But you've got to start with acknowledging your ruin that you are a mess and you need to be rescued. And unless you do that and you call out for the grace of Jesus, there's going to be no change from the dominating power of sin. Nope. So let's start back here and go to the Lord right now in prayer. Let's pray. Right now where you're at, call out to God in your mind and your heart. Acknowledge your ruin. Acknowledge what's been going on. Acknowledge that something else has been dominating you and reigning over you besides Christ. And if you're already a believer, if you cried out to Christ to be your Savior in the past, continue to cry out to Him right now to be your sanctifier, to change you, to rescue you, to give you freedom, to give you hope. And I know some of you don't even have hope that you can ever be free. Lord, I just ask that you would instill hope in them right now, that your grace is so powerful to save that your grace can, can change them. I just ask you to give them hope that they can see the light of freedom. They do not have to be stuck in this sin forever. Show them freedom in Jesus, forgiveness in Jesus, power to change in Jesus. And when they call out to you right now for a rescuer, and may we just kind of soak in your grace today. Be excited about your forgiveness and your ability to change us. And in the coming weeks and the coming days and the interactions we have in our ethos communities, Lord, show us how to walk in that grace, how to walk in that mercy, how to walk in that forgiveness, how to walk in that freedom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.